question here. How do we get there? Okay, we've talked about the reality of it. We've talked about what our bodies are going to be like. But how do we get to heaven? What is the path to get there? Now imagine if I invited you to a party. The greatest party you could ever imagine. Imagine I told you that this is the most amazing party in the history of the world and that the party venue is the coolest party venue in the universe. But I didn't tell you how to get there. No directions, no Google map, pin, no address. Or maybe you could think of it this way. Imagine yourself as a runaway child. You run away from home and squandered your inheritance. You long to return home to the safety and provision of your father's house. Your heart aches with pain and regret and you feel like you're going to die if you can't make it back home. But you've wandered so far that you don't know the way back. In fact, you've crossed an ocean that you cannot cross on your own to get home. You're afraid and and alone and lost. See, this morning we're going to hear some of the most important words that you can hear from the Bible. See, Jesus himself tells us that the answer for our weary and longing hearts, he tells us the way home. So grab a Bible and open to John 14, verses 1 through 7. The Gospel of John, chapter 14. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We've got extra copies, so if you, if you need one, we'd be happy to, to hand one to you to follow along with us today. So John chapter 14 is where we're going to be here. And, and what we're going to see is a simple and profound truth. Jesus is the only way. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to read our passage, and then we will tackle it together. So John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you, may, you, may, you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, what we're going to do as we tackle this is, is if you dig in and study this passage, there's a shape to the text. And I want to show you what that shape is because the gospel writer, the apostle John, actually wrote this passage and the way the dialogue flows has an, inten- an intentional structure to it. There are parallels in the text and repetitions of the most important themes. So take a look at the screen here, and you'll see how this passage is structured. You'll see verses 1, and then 2 to 4, and then 5, 6, and 7 have this arc to them, and there's a parallel. 
So here's what we're going to do. We're going to work our way through this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples as we follow this structure. Because what you'll see here is in verse 1, we're going to see that Jesus and the Father are one. And if you go all the way to the bottom there, verse 7 reiterates that same truth. Then verses 2 to 4 talk about how Jesus is the way to the Father. And verse 6 reiterates that same truth, but, but, but goes even deeper into the meaning of it. And then verse 5 is this question in the middle of it. That really is the question of the day. We don't know the way. How do we get there? So this shape of the passage is how we'll flow through it here. So let's look at verse 1. This is that first line where Jesus and the Father are one, okay? So in the context of this conversation, we need to know where we're located here. If you go back to John chapter 13, the context of this conversation is the Last Supper, the night that Jesus is betrayed. And in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 all the way through 17 flow through a dialogue and conversation at the dinner table in the upper room at the Last Supper. So Jesus is, is hours away from, minutes away from being arrested and the next morning being tried and crucified. And here in John 13 to 17 is his last conversation with his disciples. So what Jesus goes through in these chapters is he talks to them about being servants. He, he actually, in John 13, at the beginning of this meal, uh, uh, sits, kneels down and washes the feet of his disciples and said, this is the example of how you serve others. He talks about who's going to betray him. He talks about the fact that he's going to be glorified by the Father, that he predicts Peter's denial. He promises the Holy Spirit in chapter 14. Later on, and in 15, he calls himself the vine and us the branches. He talks about persecution and grief when he goes to the cross. And then he prays for his disciples and for all of us in chapter 17. So it's in the middle of this last conversation where Jesus speaks these words. And he tells them that he's going to be leaving. And the disciples freak out. Okay, so if you go just before our passage, if you're in the Bible there and you glance up, the end of chapter 13, Jesus basically says, hey, I'm leaving now. And all the disciples say, wait a second, you can't go anywhere. Because in their minds, they're thinking, this is our Messiah, our, our political Messiah. He's going to get rid of the Romans and he's going to set up a kingdom here. And so if Jesus were to die or to go somewhere else, everything that they thought was going to happen would come crumbling down. So they... They, they, they kind of freak out here. They're, they're scared. And so this fear that they're having of their entire world sort of starting to crumble before their eyes is what Jesus speaks to in chapter 14, verse 1. So look at the words that Jesus speaks. The disciples are scared, and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. He says, You believe in God, believe also in me. See, this is incredible. Okay, Jesus is about to be betrayed and go to the cross. And even in this moment where he has his impending walk towards his death, he still is comforting the disciples. 
you'd think it should be the other way around where they should be supporting him and saying, Jesus, we, we, we want to be behind you as you go through with, with this very intense experience you're about to have and, and the, the death you're about to die. But instead, they think that everything is still about them. And Jesus, right as he's about to go to the cross, he still looks at them and says, you guys don't understand. You do not have to fear. And, and when, you, when you see this verse, what he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. When you look at the words in the original Greek language that they were speaking, the words equate, literally, it's, it's a, like a math equation. It literally says, believe, you believe in God, in me, you believe. It's a mirror that shows that there is a, a, an equation here that God the Father and God the Son are one. If you believe in, and trust in God the Father, then you need to believe and trust in me because Jesus is God. You see, Jesus is saying that he and the Father are one and the same, both fu fully God together in perfect unity. So what, is the, what are the implications of this? And this gets into that second uh, section there, verses 2 to 4, where Jesus is the way to the Father. So let's just look at those verses again. So if Jesus says, you know what, God and I are, are, are one, so here's what's going to happen now. Verse 2, my Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. See, the disciples were concerned, again, with this earthly political kingdom. And Jesus burst their bubble by telling them that he's going to go somewhere else to prepare a place for them. That he's going to go somewhere else to get the kingdom ready. You see, his kingdom isn't of this world. And he, he, he calms their fears by telling them they don't have to worry about every, anything at all. He's going to make sure that there is plenty of room in his father's house for them. You see, he says, when I come back, I'm going to take you to be there where I am. Now, when Jesus goes off to prepare a place, the first step in the preparation process is he walks through a, a, a trial and a crucifixion and his resurrection. That, that the first step to preparing the, the reality of heaven, the new heavens and new earth in the future, is that Jesus does the work of dying on our behalf and rising and defeating death. And then when he ascends to be with the Father... He goes ahead to prepare and make sure that, that everything is proper and right for that place for us to be with him forever. And so he looks at his disciples and says, you think you have to fear in the realities of sort of the flesh and blood kingdom of this life? He says, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm taking care of it. I'm going to come back and, and, and heaven is going to come. So he says, you know the place to where I am going. Now this, of course, the disciples are still confused. They don't realize... And this is the key. They don't realize that when Jesus says, you know the way, that the way is sitting at the table with them. So look at what Thomas says. This is now the middle of our structure here. Verse 5, the disciples still don't understand what's going on. Now, in the text here, Thomas represents the feeling of all the disciples. Thomas kind of gets a bad name. Okay, he gets a bad rap in the Bible. 
He's actually portrayed in the scriptures as a loyal and courageous man. But he's the kind of guy who, when he has an intense question or a doubt, he can't hold it in. He just blurts it out. I don't know if you ever have a friend like that where they just don't hold in what they're thinking and they just sort of like let it out in the middle of a a conversation, right? This is Thomas, okay? Thomas is that guy who just can't hold it in. So Thomas is too literal here. He listens to Jesus and he's saying, where are you going? We don't, look at the words that he says, verse five. He literally, he takes Jesus literally. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I mean, he, 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 he literally wants the GPS coordinates. He's like, tell me where to go so that I can punch it in my phone and figure out how to get there. You see, Thomas doesn't understand what's going on. And so Jesus answers him very plainly, very clearly, very deliberately with some of the most important words that you could possibly hear. Look at verse 6. Jesus gives him, Thomas, and the disciples an answer that they weren't prepared for. Jesus answered, and this is again where Jesus talks about being the way to the Father, but he goes into more detail here. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, these are the most important words that you could hear in your entire life. The most important message that you could possibly hear is Jesus speaking these words. I am the way, he says. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are two phrases there, and I want to address them each individually. So Jesus, on the one hand, says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then he says, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So when he speaks these words, I am the way and the truth and the life, let's, let, let's talk about what those mean for a moment. See, when Jesus says, I am the way, he does not mean that I am the best example of how to live, and so you should live like me. He doesn't say that, that, that his way is the best way, and so you should maybe uh, dis- determine and decide uh, to throw away everything else and just follow his example, because by being like him, you can earn your way to salvation. He's not saying that. Instead of saying, I have the best way, and you should follow the way that I've chosen to follow, he says, I am the way. He doesn't just know the way. He is the way. You see, he achieved our salvation by his own work. So the path to heaven is only through trust in what he did. Okay, so then he says, I am the truth. See, Jesus is the supreme revelation of God, the triune God. He is the word made flesh. Okay, another passage that helps us to understand this is Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says this about Jesus. He says that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That you don't need to add anything else or find anyone else. Jesus is it. If you want to know God, Jesus is fully 
the truth of who God is revealed in human flesh and in history. Everything real and true has been revealed in him. He is the truth. Now, he also says, I am the life. Jesus, in other words, is the only way to life. Now, all of us are destined for death. But Jesus is the only one capable of redeeming and resurrecting us. You see, just a few chapters earlier in the Gospel of John is one of the most amazing stories in all of the Bible. In John chapter 11, one of Jesus' good friends, Lazarus, dies. And Jesus is asked to come and help. And when Jesus is face to face with the death and loss of a human being, John 11.35 says that Jesus wept when he was face to face with his friend's death. Verse 38 in that same chapter says that Jesus was deeply moved by the decay and the grief that he saw. Because you know what? He knows that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he proved that he has the power to bring dead things back to life. Because he is the life. He alone can do this. Now, there's a, a, a man named Thomas A. Kempis, a German-Dutch theologian who died in 1471, who wrote one of the most well-known devotional Christian books of all time called The Imitation of Christ. It's a classic. And in this book, he wrote about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And you'll see it here on the screen. I'm going to read what he wrote in his devotional book. So he wrote these words as though Jesus were speaking. Follow me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow, the truth which you must believe, the life for which you must hope. I am the way that cannot be violated, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. This is who Jesus is. And you know what? Jesus drives this point home in the second part of that verse 6. So I said there's two different phrases here. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, this is, an ex- this is an exclusive statement. Jesus says, I am the only way. And this exclusivity applies to two different realms. And so I want you to see what, is, what, what the implications of this are. The first is, is that when Jesus says, I'm the only way, it's a challenge to other religions. Jesus is not just a competing option among possible religions or faiths. He is the only way. All others are frauds and fakes. Okay, yes, saying those words can sound like an unacceptable and uh, unbelievable thing to people around us in the culture that we live in. To some modern ears, to hear that Jesus is the only path, 
is offensive. But you know what? That's the gospel, friends. His truth is the only truth. His offer of salvation is the only offer of salvation. And so it challenges all other worldviews and means to be saved. That's the first one. The second one is that Jesus' statement challenges all of us as individuals. Because Jesus is the supreme revelation of God himself. You cannot claim to know God or know truth or know life apart from Jesus. Now that Jesus has come on the scene in history, you cannot say that you know God without knowing him. Jesus makes this so clear by telling us that knowing him means that we know God the Father. And this is where verse 7 comes in. So if we go back to that framework here, you'll see verse 7 is telling us again that Jesus and the Father are one. But he says it in even more clear terms. Look at verse 7. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Friends, what he's saying is very simple and straightforward. Jesus is one with the Father, fully God and fully man. And he is the full and complete manifestation of the living God in flesh and blood. And so if you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. Okay, friends, this reality presents us with a decision that we have to make. And I'll challenge you with this. What are you going to do with Jesus? If he's the only way, then you have to do something with the claims that he makes. If he's the exclusive path, the only source of truth, the only hope for life, you cannot ignore him. You can't take or leave Jesus as people would like to do. You see, all of history pivots on him. You will live or die depending on your relationship with him. All of creation is being renewed and will be restored by him. And the only way to be a part of the redemption of all things is to trust and follow him. So I'll ask again, what are you going to do with Jesus? Now, you may have heard in the news this week that a former Dallas police officer, Amber Geiger, who's mistakenly shot a man who she thought was in her apartment when she went into the wrong apartment, that she was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Now, the victim's brother, his name is Brant Jean, was given the opportunity to give a victim impact statement during the sentencing this week. Now, Brant is just 18 years old. And here he is sitting on the witness stand with the opportunity to speak to his brother's killer. And you know what? He knew the world was watching. And there's all kinds of ways he could have approached that situation and twisted it for his own advantage. But put yourself in that moment where he's sitting there speaking. Also, put yourself in, the, in that moment in Amber Geiger's shoes. She cannot undo what she did. Serving her time for 10 years cannot bring this man's, life, or this man's life back. 
Saying that she's sorry can never take back the years she took away. So can you imagine how hopeless it is to, to, to sit there and think that there's nothing that you can actually do to ultimately right the wrong that you did? That there's nothing that you can, you can do to actually ultimately deal with the sin you did? So there's only one solution to this. And Brandt was so bold as to make this so clear. In his testimony, he said these words. If you truly are sorry, I forgive you. And I know that if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. He goes on to say later, he says, I love you just like anyone else and I want the best for you. Because I know that's exactly what Botham, his brother, would want. And he said this, and the best would be that you give your life to Christ. Wow. You see, Brent asked the judge if he could get up and give her a hug. And there they embraced for over a minute, sobbing, as he declared to her the truth that, you know what, I forgive you, and it doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter where you come from or whatever has happened. If you go to God and ask for forgiveness, he will forgive you. Give your life to Christ. He could have chosen this moment to get retribution or to, to use it to spotlight some racial injustice, something. He could have piled on to her 10-year sentence by shaming her in public. And instead, he chose forgiveness and to point her to the only way for redemption, Jesus. And you know what, friends? Just like Amber Geiger, you can never make all your sins right either. You need forgiveness. And there's only one way. It's to give your life to Jesus Christ, to trust in his sacrificial death, to pay for your sin, to hope in his victorious resurrection that ensures that you will be made new in the new heavens and new earth. And you will be with him forever. So today we're going to celebrate communion together. And that challenge from this passage that we can't ignore Jesus and his claims is so stark in front of us. And so we need to choose the way, the truth, and the life today. We're going to celebrate that at the Lord's table. Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of so much brokenness, in the midst of all of our sin, these words are words of life. Not words of condemnation, not words of, of shame, not words of, of retribution, not words that leave us in our sin and brokenness, but words of truth, words of life. That Jesus is the only way to forgiveness. Lord, we need to hear that. We need to hear that we're forgiven by the blood that was shed and the body that was broken for our Savior Jesus. It's the only way. We love you, God. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.